This is the Education Exchange with Paul Peterson. I am the senior editor at Education Next. Thank you for joining us. Bill de Blasio, mayor of New York City, told reporters last week that he was not sure whether the city's schools would be opening this fall. We have to make sure kids are safe, family members are safe, educators are safe, staff is safe. If for any reason we're not confident of that, then you can just stick with a pure online learning. Well, he admitted that online learning was not ideal, but he said it still has been a very, very admirable effort in reaching so many kids. De Blasio is not the only person warning against reopening too soon. The National Education Association, the country's largest teachers union, says bringing thousands of children together in school buildings without proper testing, tracing, and social isolation is dangerous and could cost lives. But after a horrible spring and summer without summer camps and baseball diamonds, parents and students are desperate that schools return to normalcy. To discuss these issues, I have with me on the Education Exchange, Dr. Scott Atlas, who is a senior fellow at the Hoover Institution at Stanford University on healthcare policy, and formerly was professor and chief of neuroradiology at the Stanford University School of Medicine. So Dr. Atlas is one of the country's leading experts on health policy, and it's great to have him with us on the Education Exchange. Thank you, uh, Scott, for joining me today. Thanks for having me, Paul. So Scott, uh, New York City is at the very core of the coronavirus epidemic in the United States. Should it open its schools this coming fall? So the answer is absolutely, if you care about the science and facts. And, and I, can, I say that very, uh, very strongly because we need to look at the data. It's not good enough to be fearful or to say you're looking at science. These are the facts. The people who are under 18 in that K through 12 age group have essentially zero, nearly zero risk of death and nearly zero risk of a serious illness. Why do I say that? Because that's what the data shows. I'm gonna talk about the CDC data, first of all. When you look at the CDC and they've cataloged the first 56,000 deaths, 12 are in children. That means up to 14 according to their categories, 12. That means 0.02%. That means 99.98% are people older than that. And just for perspective, in the CDC page itself, not 12 deaths from the seasonal flu, not 20 deaths, 600. Okay, in children, the CDC estimates 600 deaths from the flu. Okay. This year or this the past four months? The most recent data. Okay, the most recent estimate they have, I think, is 2017-18 flu season. Uh, but I'm just giving you their most recent, that's their most recent estimate. Second point, look at New York City, focus on New York City here for a second. Of the 15,000 plus deaths in New York City, I forget the exact number, 15,756, last I looked, eight were in people zero to 18, okay? That calculates to, uh, I think, 0.05%, okay? Not just that, but of those eight under 18, one child had, is documented as no underlying condition, one. And when we say underlying condition, 
If you have an underlying condition under 18, it's a significant condition. It's, it's not some minor kind of very common thing for, for an under 18 year old to have an underlying illness. So one child, that's the data, that's 0.006%. That means 99.994% of deaths are not in otherwise healthy children and only eight people under 18 total. So that's just uh, the deaths. The hospitalization, okay, as an indication for serious illness is extraordinarily low in children, not just in New York, not just in the United States, all over the world. Okay, when you look uh, at the data, I think from JAMA Pediatrics, Journal of the AMA Pediatrics, published May 11th, a few days ago. I mean, this is the data. This is the medical perspective. Their quotes are, first, COVID-19 is far less serious in children than in adults. Second, COVID-19 has far uh, uh, less cases than influenza. And the bottom line is the risk of a, of a serious illness from COVID-19 is far less, and they said the word far less, than influenza. So, so are you it, saying that if, if we are going to close the schools for this purpose, we would have to keep the schools permanently closed because influenza is always more likely it is good to have an adverse effect on children. There's, there is, a, a, yes, another way to say it, if you believe in the logic of closing schools or even wearing masks in schools or separating school children, you must, you must, by all logic, close all schools every year for the flu season, that means November through March, or have everyone wear masks in schools and have six feet space. There is no logic to it is the point. There is no common sense logic. There is no medical science whatsoever to support that kind of statement of closing schools. And I, I, I can go on about all the other issues that you raised. For instance, this idea of contact tracing. They, uh, the teachers union says, until we have contact tracing, we can't open the schools. Okay, that's just, of a complete failure to understand the role of contact tracing. Contact tracing is a, a sort of a bread and butter public health tool at the beginning of a pandemic. This is not the beginning of a pandemic. Once an infection is established and you know millions of people have this infection, then the role of contact tracing is, is, is just done. There is no role. The role of contact tracing could be at the next pandemic, it could be if this, if there is some sort of return of this in some subsequent season, let's just say if, and the emphasis on the word if, there is a so-called second wave that it comes back in the winter. Okay, then you could say, what's the role of contact tracing? Well, if there's a small group, okay, uh, of people that have this, that's, that's useful. But to think that to do contact tracing now, uh, as a predicate for reopening. There's just no logic to that. There's no understanding of contact tracing really. And, and it doesn't change the data anyway. Uh, the data that I said, the lack of danger for children, the absence of risk for children. There is really no, no reason to sit there 
as a leader and let your own fear and caution overwhelm the actual data. But, the, but, but the, the head of the CDC said just in testimony before the Senate, something to the effect that there's 150 children that have some kind of an illness that could be related to COVID. And that means we should be extremely cautious about reopening our schools. Okay, let me address that. That's a, that's a very important thing because it's been sensationalized all over the world by people who have no medical perspective, really. It is true there is this rare association being uh, talked about uh, compared to something called Kawasaki disease. Uh, this is uh, sort of related, it seems related to this, although it may not be identical. Let me, let me sort of, this is again like an example of how irrational this whole discussion has been. There's no reason for a layman to even ever have heard of the word Kawasaki disease, but I'll explain it. Kawasaki disease is extremely rare. That disease, it is an uncertain cause, uh, abnormality that involves multiple organ systems in your body, and it has to do with uh, a vascular occlusion and inflammation. And that disease occurs, it's, it's, it's considered extremely rare, and it occurs every year, approximately two to 4,000 children per year in the United States get Kawasaki disease. It has nothing to do with this. Now we have a report that's extremely rare examples, far rarer than Kawasaki disease itself, are seem to be occurring in people exposed to or carrying or infected with COVID-19, with the coronavirus. So it's an extremely rare example of something that's already extremely rare. And by the way, just as an aside to people listening, Kawasaki disease is treatable. It's not like COVID. It's not, it's not like coronavirus. It's treatable. So this is just, yes, the bottom line medical perspective is this. All doctors know that every disease has exceptions and tragic exceptions exist in virtually every infection known to man. And that does not go against the overwhelming data. This is again where we have people in charge who don't have a medical perspective. And I could call that lack of common sense, but I, I'm empathizing with their own fear because, you know, we have to admit everybody who's in charge is just a human being. Uh, and there's a big burden when you start thinking about children uh, and getting sick and dying. But the reality is not that. The reality is that this disease is nowhere near as dangerous as seasonal flu. I mean, I don't think that that can be emphasized enough. We know the fatality rates now, if you look at the data in detail, recent data from all over the world, not just the United States, France, Spain, the Netherlands, it's not the bottom line number of how many people die, it's who dies that's important. Nowhere is there a significant risk for children on any of the data. No. Well, then people point out that it's the teachers we have to worry about, or the staff, the other people at the school who could get infected by the children, or it could infect one another. And this is a confined space, so we shouldn't, you know, pack all these people into these confined spaces. We, it's better to keep the. And this, is, of course, is an issue on college campuses as well. So, very, there's dense concentrations of people who children don't take 
they don't wear masks, they don't social distance themselves, all of those kinds of things. So the adults there will be infected. So maybe it's not an issue with the children, but maybe it's still an issue. Okay, well, the answer is the following. When we look at the data in these studies, the first, the danger, the fatality rate for people under 60 is less than or equal to seasonal flu. That's fact. Well, That's you can retire at age 60. If you're a teacher, exactly. you can retire at age 60. So the, 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 yeah, well, if you look at the, actually, you mentioned age of teachers. You know what? The, the, uh, the median age of a public school teacher in the United States is 41. Okay, 50% of people are under 40. Okay, these are not 65-year-old diabetics with congestive heart failure and renal failure. Okay, now if there is, I'm not saying there are none. I'm not saying there are no children, uh, there are no teachers at risk, but teachers at risk, that's different. Okay, teachers that are in the high risk group have to take their own protective measures. You don't lock down the schools because, you know, just again, another perspective. Do you know who's at risk of dying from seasonal flu? People who are older with the same underlying diseases that these people are. Okay. It's, it's not, it's not unexpected. This is medical every single medical student in the country knows that if the if the question is who's at risk to die from an upper respiratory infection that could kill people the the answer without knowing anything is people who are older with underlying diseases specifically diabetes kidney failure heart failure and other immunocompromised people so yes there are people there are people in the situation that are at risk. Shouldn't we do something to isolate those and protect, not isolate, just protect and warn those people? You don't lock down everyone healthy. And by the way, forget about the fact that the vulnerable people who are mainly older people in the nursing homes, by the way, you don't protect them. You just lock down all the healthy people. You know, I mean, this, this whole thing has become almost a bizarre lack of logic and common sense at this point. There is no scientific data to keep children confined or outside of schools or separated or wearing masks. There is zero. Yes, I wish you could uh, tell some people in my life uh, this story because uh, a lot of people tend to believe that somehow kids need to be protected from one another. I just saw an email exchange uh, on the, on the Stanford campus between a couple of people living there who said, you know, I, those kids out there are playing together. We have to do something about this problem. Yeah, you know, there, there's a, uh, this is to me what's very frightening, frankly. Uh, you know, I, I think that there's a frightening, frightening lack of understanding that has translated into a frenzy here. And I live in the, the Bay, San Francisco Bay Area I see people wearing a mask driving alone in their car. I see people, I go running every day outside. I see people running around the track or outside alone wearing a mask. And this is not making fun of this at all. I, I am very, very uh, empathetic to the fear, uh, but this is a, a manifestation, frankly, of a complete uh, irrational lack of understanding that leaders are supposed to alleviate fear with a knowledge-based assessment of what policy should be. 
Leaders are not supposed to translate their own fear into these knee-jerk uh, statements and really uh, just simply uh, uh, policies that lack common sense. I, I can tell you that uh, the things I've written and my I wake up to 100 emails plus every morning from all over the world. And what I can gather is that most people have common sense. And when they read these things and when they see the numbers and when they understand uh, the way it's laid out, they're not afraid. They realize this is really almost insanity here. There, there is a contagion here. The contagion is the fear. So now some people say that it would actually be very helpful to the health of everyone if kids did go to school and they did pass the, the virus from one to another so that we would get herd immunity. Can you explain that uh, way of thinking? To our audience. Yes, and I think this is very, very important. And of course, uh, it's been the 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 real uh, information has been distorted, and you know, by people who really don't they don't understand what what's going on here. The way that people get immunity, the way a population gets immunity, is by way of antibodies, and that means what? That means that when somebody's infected with a virus like this your body naturally generates antibodies. Those antibodies are protective. This is from decades of knowledge about basic science, immunology, clinical uh, science. And generally, when you have people transmit infection to other people, they get antibodies. And so eventually you have created a sort of a blockage of the network of contagiousness among people. And in that way, you block the transmission to the people who are vulnerable to die. That is the entire basis of giving vaccines. That's the reason. Everyone believes in this. This is not some kind of a far out, this is the way medical science is. This is proven. And because you give vaccines on a widespread basis, you end up blocking the network of contagiousness to other people. If you didn't believe in that, you would never believe in a vaccine. If you didn't believe in that, you would never believe the, the studies going on right now that show that when you transfuse the plasma that contains antibodies from people who've recovered into others that didn't get the disease yet, it blocks the infection or helps them recover. That's the basis of it. This is not an unusual theory. This is accepted science. And so even Dr. Fauci said the other day, we know we're, he goes, he says, I'm highly optimistic about a vaccine. And the answer to why is people get this infection, they generate antibodies, and they get better. That's his statement. And that this is nothing unusual. This is basic, very, very much a simple, really, concept. And so the, the point is this, when you isolate people from each other, when you completely stop human-to-human -human contact, you are literally preventing population immunity. You're preventing it, you're blocking it. And we see that in this disease that is highly contagious, by the way, even with the isolation, you can't totally stop infection because A, it's, it's highly contagious, B, people don't know they have it, and that's good news. 50% of, it's so mild, in most people that half the people that get it have no symptoms whatsoever. So there's, just a new, there's just a new study out in uh, Los Angeles that says 4% of the people in Los Angeles County have this, this virus. Uh, the case, number of cases is of course uh, much smaller. So about 50 to 80 times as many people 
in the county of Los Angeles actually have this infection than have shown any signs of it. Yeah, and uh, in a place like Manhattan, 24% of people, the latest data I saw, have antibodies. Okay, this is during the lockdown. And so uh, it's, you know, Manhattan, of course, has its own reasons because of the way of living and, and all the other things going on there that would make sense that there'd be a lot more uh, people with the infection. But the point is that when you isolate people, the, the point here is that when you have transmission of infection among low-risk groups, that's a good thing because they don't have a problem with this infection. And when you do that, if enough people get infected, then you have enough immunity. And by the way, that immunity is going to be needed even without, with or without a vaccine. If we get a vaccine, I mean, the flu vaccine is 40 to 60% effective, okay? And so uh, we, we anticipate that even if there is a vaccine, it's it sort of, a, it would be odd to say it's going to be 100% effective. I don't think any, any real scientist would say that. And so the point is that it's helpful to have people have natural immunity. Now, why is it uh, important? Because all you really have to do, given that under 60 is the same or less risk than the flu, if you just make sure that you're aware if you're older and have underlying illnesses, that there's a much higher risk and you protect the people in the nursing homes, there's, it's not a negative to have more cases, okay, in the, in the non-risk group people. It's actually a positive uh, because it's not, it's not a big deal for those people. And so when you look at the numbers, by the way, to put another perspective on this, half the, the deaths, more than half in most states in the U.S. are inside nursing homes, okay? In, in uh, the U.S. overall, the estimate is about 40 plus percent. In the world, over half. So if you took away, if you, if you could somehow do what is obvious, you don't have to be a doctor to say this, and, and make sure everyone who's entering a nursing home has testing and is cleared or they cannot get in, and you never put a person in there who's infected, and you never allow a worker in there who's infected, and you make sure people in there are not infected, you've cut out half the deaths right there. So meantime, what we did was we confined every healthy person and stopped society at all costs and didn't protect the people who we knew we were going to die. In, in fact, they did put infected people in a nursing home when there wasn't space in the hospital, I think, in, in New York State. Well, no, there, was, there was space in the hospital. There, there was space. That's a separate sort of gross failure of public policy. They had all these empty beds in the, in the new hospital that was built at the Javits Center. And uh, all over the country, by the way, hospital beds are empty. Uh, so, you know, this is the other thing to realize. The only goal of the policy was to flatten the curve and prevent hospital overcrowding. That was the goal. That goal has been accomplished. There was never a goal of stopping all cases. There cannot be a goal of stopping all cases. It's impossible to stop all cases of a contagious disease when there's millions of people walking around with the disease. That is an irrational policy goal and no one would even, I, I can't believe anyone competent would say that. Well, I think Sweden is coming close to following the policy you suggest. Can you tell us uh, what Sweden is looking like on the ground? What's been the experience of their decision to not to shut down everything, to let kids yeah. go to school? Yeah, there's another kind of mythology that is evolving in the narrative here, uh, just by very sloppy thinking by smart people. And that is uh, Sweden, they didn't do a lockdown. 
that doesn't mean they did nothing. They, they did uh, stop large group gatherings. They did recommend uh, working from distance if you could. They did recommend social distancing. So they didn't do nothing, uh, but they didn't totally devastate uh, life and do totally irrational things. Now, what's the, what's the first, uh, I'll tell you what the result is. What the result is, is that they have uh, roughly uh, the same, they're somewhere in the middle of countries that did total lockdown. And uh, it, it depends what you compare it to. So uh, they're, they're, if you take countries like, uh, you know, Belgium, France, Italy, Spain, they're much better off. In terms of deaths per capita, uh, they're not as good as, Finland and Norway, for example. And this is sort of people say, oh, you see the difference is the, the lockdown. Well, that, that's really a very naive and superficial way to look at it. Because if you think that the difference in lockdown is the difference between outcomes of deaths per capita in adjacent countries, if you make that hypothesis, then what you're gonna have to do is say, well, then that must apply in other countries. And so we look, you look at the deaths, in France, Switzerland, and Germany. These are countries that share borders. They have very similar populations, roughly. And they did the same lockdown, more or less, okay? They did the same lockdown. We're talking France, uh, Switzerland, and Germany, yet their, their deaths per capita are widely disparate. So it's not the, it's far more complicated. No one, there's no single factor. So to compare, Okay, uh, you know, Norway to, uh, or Finland to Sweden, that's just, that's just not, that's not really critical thinking. I mean, I, I just dismiss that as people who just don't know what they're doing, unfortunately. So what, what we do is we look at Sweden and we see the following. A, their, their numbers are not very different, uh, generally speaking, than people who did lockdown. B, uh, they hurt their economy severely because of the fear and the policies, but probably not as severely uh, as the other countries. But they did something that is, again, a egregious, uh, a really inexplicably bad uh, outcome, which is they have more than 50% of their deaths in nursing homes. And so again, it's really inexplicable except to say that people just are irrational and acting out of fear and not thinking correctly here. People are dead in nursing homes that didn't have to die. I mean, that's just, uh, that's just a sad reality. And this is the tragedy of this policy, even not counting the massive healthcare harms and deaths from people who didn't get healthcare and still aren't getting their healthcare because of this COVID-19 at all costs. So what are the risks to children and to society of not letting the children return to school this fall. What we've talked about the risks of going and there aren't many, if any, and what's the risk of not going back to school? Yeah, well, I mean, the, the risk of not going back to school, it, it, you know, I'm not an expert on education policy, you are, but uh, it seems to me there's something very important for the public to understand. And this gets into what the effects of the policies are in general, okay? The policies, not the virus, the policies have serious harms. In fact, so there's two sides to that. One is the healthcare side. 
The healthcare side is 150,000 cancers that are diagnosed every month in the US, these patients aren't being seen, okay? 650,000 people in the US with cancer are on chemotherapy. Something like 40, 50% are not getting their chemotherapy. 40% of people with acute strokes, emergencies are not coming into the hospital. You know, two thirds to three fourths of cancer screenings are not getting done. Most of these are in adults, but they're also parents, grandparents, brothers, sisters of children. Uh, and then there's something even worse, specifically with regard to children's health. And that is that more than half of immunizations in children are not getting done. Okay, we're setting up, first of all, we're killing people with the policy of stopping hospitals from functioning. And that's just not stopping hospitals. That's also instilling fear in the people so that they actually think they're, they're safer to not go in, which is a gross misjudgment. But children skipping immunizations, we are setting up a catastrophic situation in, in the pediatric world, in, in children's health. And we're setting up all kinds of problems that we never had before with measles, with all kinds of other diseases. And you know, this is really uh, a complete lack of, of uh, understanding what you're doing when you're talking about so in, you know, so foisting a policy on people without considering the actual impact of the policy itself. The second side of the equation that you know more than I do is that when you have distance learning, when you have this fantasy of distance learning, uh, we're, you, know, you have to think beyond the people that have their second home outside of Manhattan in, uh, you know, in, in uh, the Hamptons or in uh, Westchester. You know, you have to look at, you know, uh, there's a huge divide, as we all know, in lower economic groups versus affluent in education already. You think that there's not a difference in the way children's homes are set up for distance learning? And, you know, poor people particularly uh, need education because lower income groups, as well as upper income groups, these parents can't even go back to work if their children aren't in school. And when you're taking their children out of school for no rational reason, that's really ludicrous, insane. And then when you go and say, okay, we're going to cancel the school programs for the summer too. We're worried about opening because, you know, uh, well, we don't know every single child will ever be safe. You know, I mean, this is really not just irrational, but it's so destructive, particularly to uh, the socializing of children, to the social health of children, to the maturation of children, and to, again, lower income groups who depend on summer programs for children's activities. And so, uh, you know, there, there is really a shocking, shocking lack of thought in these statements that you read to me earlier by both the mayor of New York and the uh, education groups in terms of they are literally destroying things with this policy and completely ignoring the science and the medical data on this disease. Well, thank you, uh, Scott, for this absolutely fascinating, illuminating uh, conversation. Uh, I, I wish uh, we could share this uh, across the country uh, but thank you very much for, for joining me, and I'm sure that many, many people will be uh, passing this on from one to another in their, uh, in their Twitter exchanges. So thank you for joining me on the Education Exchange. 
Thanks, Paul. Thanks. Happy to have the opportunity. I've been speaking with Dr. Scott Atlas, Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution at Stanford uh, University. And I am Paul Peterson. This is the Education Exchange. Please join me for a new Education Exchange podcast released on the Education X website every Monday at noon Eastern time.